Hello, everyone. Just want to thank you guys for coming out. Hope everybody's fine tonight. Um, my name is David Manigault. I'm a filmmaker, and I'm also a teacher at Merrillville High School. I teach Mandarin Chinese. And me and Dwight are really good friends. Um, just want to talk about our relationship a little bit. Um, we grew up together in East Baltimore. And one thing that we shared in common was uh, playing basketball. And one thing I can say is, I don't know if people know what a hawk is in basketball, but it's like somebody who like shoot the ball all the time and don't want to pass it and like always want to score and like always want to like do the best moves. And it's, it's crazy. But I say this to connect that type of energy and that type of persistence um, to his work ethic and his writing. He has an unbelievable work ethic that um, we see these essays and we see these writings, but a lot of time D is really um, isolating himself to tell these great stories. And these stories are stories that are based on our life, people, environments, moments that D has recreated and to share his opinion, which we all are entitled to do, have an opinion and a voice. D has made mistakes in the past, but has redeemed himself through community engagement, art, and for that, I am proud of him. All right? D is a columnist for Salon. His work has been published in the New York Times, the Huffington Post, Aeon, Rolling Stone, Alternet, The Guardian, and other magazines. He holds a master in education from John Hopkins University and a Master in Fine Arts in Creative Writing from the University of Baltimore. He is a college professor and also a recipient of numerous magazines, including Be Me Fellowship, Baltimore Magazine's Best Writer Award for 2015, and the Best Business Journal 40 Under 40 list. John Hawking Magazine writes, Watkins storytelling is filling a void that mainstream journalism has left behind. He has lectured at countless universities, events, and programs around the world, around the world. Watkins has been featured on Meet the Press and has been a reincurring guest on CNN, NPR, Monday Morning, Tell Me More, HuffPost Live, and The Mark Stern Show, who described Watkins as brilliant, phenomenon that needs to be heard.
Watkins is from and lives in East Baltimore. His debut collection of essays, The B-Side, will be published by Skyhorse in the fall of 2015, followed by the memoir, Cook Up, which will be released by Grand Central in 2016. And for that, can you guys give a round of applause for D. Watkins? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That's, uh, not that many claps. <laughs> I'm thankful, and I'm you know. Thank you to everyone who came out. Thanks for coming through. Um, I really, really appreciate it. And hopefully, um, you know, I can read a little bit and, um, you know, we can be, uh, can be entertaining and then we can just jump into, oh, this for me? <laughs> I'm not that guy that runs across the stage like. <laughs> but cool. Um, hopefully, you know, it can be um, informative and entertaining and we get an opportunity to talk about some of these issues that I write about, some of these issues that we all think about all of the time and, and try to figure out some ways to get to the bottom of some of this stuff. Um, no, I don't have all the answers, but collectively, I do believe that we have all of the answers. So, you know, you need people from all walks of life, um, the street, the church, the academia folks, um, the sprout eaters, Whole Foods crowd, everybody... <laughs> Everybody, every, everybody has to get together and collectively try to get to the bottom of some of these issues. Um, I'm just one person, and I try my best to do my part. So the B-side. The B-side is a bunch of things. Um, some guy on Amazon is really, really upset with me. I was, you know, yeah, I look at the comments. <laughs> he was really upset with me because he was saying, um, you know, he wanted this book to be a dense academic book that offered concrete solutions on what everybody should do. I'm not Jesus. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't know. You know, I don't know. Um, the B-side was it? I read these books all of the time. I read them all of the time, man. Some of them are great. Some of them are a waste of space. You know, some of them make great coasters and things like that. Doorstoppers and all that. But, um, you know, I read these books all of the time and I don't have, you know, personally, I don't have anything against them, but I don't really think it's, it's my job to say what everybody should do. I think it's my job to use my own story as a guide to tie into the bigger picture of a lot of these issues that most of us face. I don't know, you know, I can write, I can write on, you know, what women go through from my own perspective, but I don't know, or I don't have the solutions. I'm not a woman, I'm not, I don't, I don't know. I can write about, um, you know, what a homeless person or somebody who can't afford a computer goes through. But I have a computer. I don't know. Like, that's why everyone has to get out there and everyone has to play a part in trying to answer some of these issues. So the B-side is not about, it's not about trying to um, be pretentious and try to act like I have the answers to everything because that's not the case. The B-side is, is uh, it, it represents, it represents many things for many people. So, um, if you're a person who grew up in East Baltimore and you know what it's like to grow up in the 90s and you saw a lot of wild and crazy things and you had to go through 
a healthcare disparity, education disparities, a poor school system, police brutality, and all of these different things, then the B-side is a love story to you and your journey and your struggle and what you've been through. If you're a person from like Towson or the back of Hoffa County somewhere and you know, you don't really understand some of the issues that we go through, then the B-side is, is the education. It's, um, it, it adds humanity to the stories that we see on the news every day. So, you know, the book is many things to many people, but one thing it's not, and I'm going to sit here and try to say it is, is, it's not a guide to tell you what to do. Because, again, one person can't solve these issues. We all have to work collectively to try to get to the bottom if we ever want to dig out of this mess. And some of these issues that I write about took hundreds and hundreds of years to create. So we're not going to fix them with an essay collection. <laughs> anybody, telling you, anybody telling you that they can do that, you know, they, they faking. <laughs> you know, so, um, again, humanity is my thing. I deal in, in, with people, not numbers or stats. So um, let's, um, let me, I want to read a couple of things for you, and then I want to talk about them, and then I want to pass this microphone, you know, I want to throw it back to the audience so, you know, we can engage and build and, and have a real conversation. Hopefully, um, you know, we all walk away with something. I'm a lifelong student. I believe in that. Um, I learned from everybody all of the time, um, even super, super right-wing conservatives. Like, <laughs> I've learned from Hannity before. <laughs> <laughs> Not really, though. <laughs> Wishful thinking. I'm just joking. One night, I participated in a peaceful protest near downtown Baltimore. My fellow protesters and I were standing in solidarity with the citizens of Ferguson, Missouri, over the murder of Mike Brown, an innocent African-American teen who was on his way to college when he was cut down by a policeman's bullets. It felt good to unite with so many different people for the same cause, a diverse group with handmade signs and a shared sense of outrage. But even as we shouted for justice, I knew it wasn't enough from my experiences in rallying for the Jenna Six and Trayvon Martin. I do have an immense amount of respect for protesters, marchers, and organizers, but in the end, after all that chanting, marching, and lying down in traffic, Darren Wilson, the cop who murdered Brown, still went free. And cops in America still feel comfortable killing innocent black people. Every time a black body falls at the hands of a rogue cop, the same protests erupt on one side and the same naive voices echo the same nonsense on the other. Well, if they were innocent, why did they run? Why did they attack an officer? Why didn't they obey? I get where those confused voices come from. In a perfect world, Innocent people should not have to run or protect themselves from the people responsible for protecting them. However, America is far from perfect, and African Americans are about as safe as a chunk of raw steak in a den full of starving lions. It doesn't matter if you stay, obey, fight back, or run. 
because either way, they'll murder you. Freddie Gray in Baltimore ran, and when they caught him, he was murdered. Walter Scott in South Carolina ran, and he was murdered too. Oscar Grant in Oakland was face down on the ground with the cuffs on, and they murdered him. John Crawford in Dayton was minding his own business, shopping at Walmart, holding one of the store's BB guns, and the officer opened fire within seconds of interacting with him. Mike Brown in Ferguson, who we, were, who we were rallying for that day in Baltimore, put his hands up, and the cops blew holes through them. Sean Bell in New York was just trying to get married, and police killed him. Eric Gardner in Staten Island pleaded for his life after he was in custody on video in public, broad daylight, and they still killed him. Irvin Edwards, mentally ill and partially deaf, had his pants hanging low, so the police tasered him to death after he was in custody. Jonathan Farrell in North Carolina wanted some help because he was in a car accident. Cops shot him to death as he reached out to them for assistance. Tamar, Tamir Rice in Cleveland was only 12. Being a kid can't save you because he was gunned down too. Thaddeus McCurrell in St. Louis was killed because he had a knife and a Bible. Rakia Boyd in Chicago was killed by an off-duty cop who fired into a dark alley. Ramali Graham in New York tried to run into his home and they got him too. Katherine Johnson, a 92-year-old woman in Atlanta, was relaxing in her home, and police stampeded in and murdered her. A kid, Garley, in Brooklyn just happened to be in his stairwell, minding his own business, with no weapon, and he was killed for that. You can be from Africa like Amadou Diallo in New York, or known as a nice guy around Baltimore like Tyrone West. It doesn't matter. No black person is safe. Kids, grannies, city workers, hustlers, church boys, prom queens, junkies, whatever. They'll murder you. These killings happen almost every day in America, so much that the newspaper should print a daily death count with photos of casualties like they do during wartime. Because for black America, this is wartime. What's disgusting is that nearly all of these officers who commit these heinous acts are found innocent. Many aren't even charged due to various versions of the Law Enforcement Officers' Bill of Rights that exist in every state. In Maryland, where I live, Police officers get 10 days before they even have to speak about the killings they're involved in, giving them ample time to assemble the mountains of lies that normally get them off. The Guardian recently reported that police will kill blacks this year at twice the rate of any other group, and this is the norm. So that's part of the intro. And um, again, you're home and you're chilling. And you, you, know, you cut the TV on, CNN, MSNBC, Fox, uh, whatever your twist is, and you see these names and you see these people rallying and protesting, and then a week later there's someone else, and then someone else, and then someone else. And a lot of times it happens so much that people actually forget that these are people. You know, Mike Brown wanted to go to college, you know. You know, Freddie Gray probably had plans that night. Tamir Rice was a kid. He probably wanted to go play with his toys. You know, he probably wanted to, you know, he probably had his first crush. You know, he didn't really hit puberty. He was probably a virgin. Dead. These people don't get a shot. And we forget that because these 24-hour news cycles, they beat these things in our heads so much that it, we almost become desensitized to it. And I was, you know, I'm tired. And, you know, 
I think that, as I, as I mentioned, or as I said in the intro, I have, uh, you know, so much respect for, you know, any type of activist or anybody doing anything to combat these issues. But I do think that strategically it's time for us to take some of these things to the next level. Um, one of my homeboys had called me a while back. This is like a couple of months ago. He was like, you know, my phone was like, ring, ring, ring. So I'm like, let me, let me get the other mic. <laughs> so I'm like, hello? He's like, yo, what's good, man? How you doing? So I said, you know, man, nothing, writing, chilling, whatever. He was like, yo, I hooked up with these people. You know, we're going to wear all black, and we're going to lie down in traffic. So get your black stuff and come meet me. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, I'm not, I'm not the richest guy in the world, man. I can't just be taking my black clothes and lying down in traffic. So, you know, I said, what's up, man? What's going, like, what's going on? Like, tell me what's going on. He said, well, they're building a new youth prison, and we're going you know, to protest that by lying down in the street. You know? So get ready. You know, you know, let's, let's do it. Let's make it happen. So I'm like, nah, man. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not doing that. Um, do you know why they're building a jail? Yeah, because they want to take money from schools. They're building a jail because they're locking so many kids up that they're running out of space in the jails that we have. And some of these kids are being forced to be housed with grown men. You can only imagine the nightmares and horrors that some of these kids, you know, being locked up is already rough, but these are things that some people can't even come back from. So am I against the jail? Yes. Do I understand why they're building a jail? Let's create some type of rally to keep them from going to jail. Can we do that? Can we open these rec centers up? Can we get these schools involved? Can we get these, you know, these, these, these organizers and people who have resources and funds to try to dump money and time and energy into that? Let's keep them out of jail. You know, but as of now, what you going to do? Send a 14-year-old into a den of, you know, 50-year-old murderers and rapists? Like, what you going to do? For sure. So, um, so for that reason, I'm not coming. So he's like, nah, man, we're going to stop the jail and we're going to stop that too, but we got to do one thing at a time. Yo, just wear like a black hoodie and you know, I mean, some old black pants and, so, you know, and you know, I got dress shoes on. Let's make it happen. <laughs> so, you know, I said, well, think about it like this, bro. Land down the traffic doesn't hurt oppressors. You know, like it doesn't hurt the people who you want to go against. Think about it. I'm a college professor, right? Not a rich college professor, but still, you know, I don't really have, like, you know, nobody breathing on my back to be somewhere at a certain time. You know, I can, like, you know, teachers know. You can just, you know, oh, yeah, you guys are going to work from home today. So, you know, if I'm driving down the street and I see um, a whole bunch of people laying down in traffic, all I have to do is whip my phone out, go to Blackboard and say, look, hey, guys, I really, really wanted to have class today, but... um, they're landing traffic and they're blocking the beltway. So I want you to read chapters 8 through 15. I want you to react in a discussion forum. And I want you guys to have a great day. Hug someone. <laughs> Peace. Right? And my day is done. Now, if I work for Walmart and I'm driving and I see people landing traffic and I'm calling my supervisor, and I'm like, yo, there's people landing traffic. I can't get to work. He's going to say, okay, you can't get to work. All right, cool. Well, that's strike one. You know, you already had a warning. You get two more of these, you won't get a raise. So you're not hurting oppressors, you're hurting other working people. You're hurting working people. So, um, you know, rich people not in a rush, they don't got nowhere to be. You know, I can't make my, I can't make my meaning more than mine. We can trade diamonds later. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they not in a rush. So, so you, know, um, 
you know, again, I, I like to think about more strategic ways. And even though I applaud anybody that wants to do something, even if you don't have the knowledge or the skill set or the know-how to be, you know, to do something on a major level, even the, the simple things mean so much. Like, the simple things mean so much. And, and if we can get to a place where we're all focusing on our individual powers while still uniting and things like that, then I think we can, um, we can make we can make um, more, more of a difference, and I, I, truly, I truly believe that. So I want to read, like, a couple of more things so you can just get, like, a better scope of the book, um, you know, and what it's about. So the B-side covers plenty of issues. Um, a lot of issues, uh, you know, it talks about a lot of things that I didn't know about coming up. So if you're a young person and explains what police brutality is and, you know, um, some light solutions, light solutions on interacting and, you know, trying to engage and things like that. Um, it covers street harassment. You know, you, you coming up on, as a kid in East Baltimore, nobody's telling you that street harassment is wrong. They're not, they're not telling you that. So it gives, like, you know, a, a how-to guy on not to be a street harasser. <laughs> and, you know, like, I, we, you know, so we, we, we take care of that. Um, it talks about food, so I'll read a little bit from that. And it talks about um, the school system. And, you know, the problems that exist within. There's a lot of issues that go on with our schools. And, um, you know, there's some amazing, amazing um, teachers out there, transformative, doing amazing work. My wife's one of them in the front row. You know, but we talk about that. So we cover those things. We go over those things. And, um, and it gives you that, it gives you that, that knowledge that, you know, a lot of us don't get. I know I didn't get a lot of these things, so... Even when my publisher was saying, you sure you want to put street harassment in the book? Yes. You know, I gave him that look like, yes. <laughs> you know, because we, we need lessons on all of these different things and so many people don't know. So we have to engage them and we have to create a reality for them so they can understand what these issues are and how we can effectively combat them. So um, I want to read a little bit from a couple of these different articles. So this one is, um, you know, cops kill us in America. I just want to read a piece, a piece of it. I'm sitting in a car directly across from Latrobe Housing Projects in Baltimore. Some teenagers in polo were posted by the corner store. There's a game of football going on by the courtyard. Tackle on concrete with clothesline poles representing first downs and end zones. The same way we used to play back in the day. The reason why our bones and teeth are all chipped up now. I wanted to walk over for a closer look, but I couldn't. I was pulled over as always. Doesn't matter what I drive. I pushed everything from, show, from showroom clean Mercedes to tight Honda Civics I can hardly fit in. And the result is always the same. Some buzz cut cop eyes me doing 29 and a 30, spots me wearing my seatbelt, and instantly thinks I'm transporting nuclear weapons and bricks and heroin for the Taliban. <laughs> they have to stop me and my terrorist agenda. But they can't do it alone, so they call for backup and then, and then get backup for their backup's backup. Red and blue lights flashing were knocking against my rearview mirror and blinking on my cell as I scrolled through text. 
Red, white, and blue is supposed to mean freedom, right? Not if you're black and never in this situation. On my window. This cop doesn't have a buzz cut at all. But he kind of looks like the dad from the Wonder Years. But whiter and more wrinkled. He's built like a jar of mayonnaise and walks like one too. Do you know why I stopped you? His face jiggles. No. Give me your license and registration. I am slowly going to my glove box to grab them. Moving fast or showing too much emotion is the quickest way to turn a routine traffic stop into a tragedy. If an officer even almost thinks you're reaching for a gun, they'll pump you with 100-plus shots like they did Amadou Diallo or Sean Bell, two working guys like me who were profiled and then executed just because. Officer Mayo takes my license and walks back to the car. Man, this is some BS, I think. It wasn't always like this. Back in the day, we had Officer Friendly, a cop that came into our schools and greeted us with love and respect. Now, our neighborhoods are full of racist cops who just harass, plunder, and kill. Step out of the car, son, and let me search it, and then I'll let you go, he says with a raised eyebrow. Son, (laughs) I'm not your son. (laughs) That's not going to happen. What's wrong with my paperwork? Nothing, it checked out, but you're in a target drug zone. So step out, let me look around, and we'll make this quick. That's not going to happen. Officer Mayo reddens up to a hint past tomato. He vomits anger into his radio as he waddles back, squeezing my license and registration. Maybe I should let him check in. I'm clean, and I hate waiting, but forget that. These guys get away with too much. So, you know, and I continue with that essay talking about what happened in that particular situation. And, um, you know, a lot of it, I think about this kid, Jonathan Farrell, a lot in North Carolina because the cop who actually, the cop who actually shot him, you know, he was charged. And then he went up for appeal, and now he's home with his family. I wrote this essay like two and a half years ago, and I predicted that in this essay two and a half years ago that he'll do a couple years and they'll, and they'll let him go. And it's, and it's not really fair. This is a college student, a football player, a student athlete, and um, a person with a family and friends that loved him. So, you know, I think about these situations and, um, you know, I, I talk about them and, you know, I, I want people to know what a lot of other people are going through. So the, the B-side also has um, other essays. This is one of my favorite essays to write. Actually, you know, it kind of... <laughs> Maybe hungry a little bit. It's, a, it's just about food. <laughs> I can't front. But, um, but it's, about, it's about food. Food deserts. What do you eat? When you're growing up in a neighborhood and you're surrounded by nothing but carryouts and McDonald's and corner stores, and then you go to school and you, you already know what a school lunch is. Well, if you grew up like in the 90s like me in the 80s, late 80s and all that, then you kind of know you know what a school lunch was. It was, <laughs> it was like an all-carb all chocolate milk diet, you know. So, you know, um, a lot of us aren't getting lessons on nutrition and what we should eat and, and, and how we can, we can do these things. So um, I'll, I'll, I'll paint that picture really quick. 
Lemonheads, now laters, flaming hot Cheetos, barbecue sunflower seeds, Boston baked beans, penny candies of every flavor, butterscotch cookies, butter crunch cookies, Twinkies, Twix, Takis, and M&Ms. That's the menu my friends and I share every morning on the way to elementary, middle, and high school. And the reason why we all have meth mouth looking teeth with chopped up incisors and rotten molars. I'm sure there are probably millions of other city kids who start their day the same, with the same diet the same way. Loads of sugar and some yellow dye number five mixed with a bunch of other unpronounceable chemicals all conjoined and neatly packaged in eye-catching wrapping paper. Kids with money eat the same thing for lunch while others are forced to eat meals provided by the school, which wasn't much better in my day. And then there's soul food, microwavable poison, or Mickey D's for dinner. I don't remember anyone addressing how dangerous food could be to me as a kid back in the 90s and early 2000s. Curry out spots like Moe's in downtown Baltimore that sold fat fried jumbo crab cakes catered my early teens when I thought I knew what good food was. My side items would be a biscuit, mashed potatoes, and a pile of vegetables that floated in warm butter, which I never ate. Skipping vegetables was easy for me, and honestly, I don't know how I got to be so tall without them, but eating them probably wouldn't have done much for my body. How healthy could overcooked greens and soaked pork fat be? So, you know, um, some of these essays are funny, some of them are informative, some of them are super depressing. It's just <laughs> <laughs> but at the end of the day, um, you know, my intentions were in the right place and, and I wanted to try my best to talk about all of these issues. A whole lot of energy is focused on police brutality, but, you know, I talk about black-on-black crime. I talk about the food we eat. I talk about the prison industrial complex. I talk about what goes on in our schools and I talk about all of these different things and I do it in a language that's accessible for everybody. Um, I, yes, I work in academia, but I kind of don't really feel like an academic. Um, I don't have a tweed jacket. <laughs> I don't have an ascot and, you know, no cardigans or berets. But, you know, I work in academia, but um, I feel like I like to, you know, I like, I have a couple cardigans. I work in, <laughs> hold up, don't get too carried away. <laughs> Let's not get crazy. Well, um, I work in academia, but I feel like um, I like to write. I like to write in a language that's accessible to everybody. Like, I want everybody to be able to read the things I write and build with them and think about them and um, spark the conversation that could lead to you creating your own solutions or you working with the people you can directly build with to create your own solutions. So, you know, my thing is reading and writing a literacy. So, you know, I put out the B-side, I teach people how to read, um, and I'm in the middle of constructing a program to introduce new journalists, high school journalists, to the city of Baltimore to document some of these issues. That's my job. Um, you know, my friend Dave is a filmmaker. You know, he's, he's one of the first people that walked through Chapel Hill projects, Latrobe projects, up and down East Baltimore, all over the place with a camera, and said, look, you know, you don't have to be a rapper. You can get paid from shooting a video. You can learn how to edit. You can do still photography. You can do these things. So, you know, and then I know other people that do nutrition, right? You know, like who, who, who really, they know how to, you know, prepare food. They know how to, uh, you know, get into fitness and, and, and get ab muscles. I'm not going to get ab muscles, but there's somebody who knows how to do it and knows how to teach kids how to do it. And they're activists and they're making a difference. So how I see us making a difference is is trying to, you know, figure out or realize what our talents, you know, what our talents are and working really, really hard to achieve mastery and then sharing that skill with other young people. And I think we can make a difference like that. I've, I've been, um, 
I've been a bunch of places over the past few weeks, and um, I was somewhere I can't remember, but you know, um, and I'll close with this so we can we can open it up to everybody. But I was um, having one of these talks, and this woman, you know, she had a question, and she was like, you know, you know, I'm just a I'm just a white woman from Seattle. I don't have nothing, you know, but my camera. I, what can I do? I can't do anything. I care, but what can I do? And I said, well, you know. Instead of going around to these, these events and these uprisings and these places and taking pictures, I mean, that's cool. But while you're there, won't you pull some kids aside, show them how to work that camera, and introduce them to the reality of being an artist for a living because they're not seeing it. Then you're making a difference. Poor people, black people, whatever, anybody in a rough situation, we don't want handouts. We built this country, like, so let's not get carried away. Like, We don't want handouts. We want a fast shake like everybody else. We want to be able to... to learn, you know, to, to be exposed to the things that we aren't getting and have the opportunity to learn these skills and, and share these skills and, and, and for everyone to be able to succeed and have the opportunity to do what they want to do. So that's my thing. Um, no, I don't have all the answers, but, you know, as long as I'm working really hard every day, I'm doing my part to lay down the foundation for the next generation, and I'm super proud of that. Thank you. So I don't know how to format, I don't know how to format, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> I don't know how the format normally is, but you know, if you have some questions, I'm, you know, I'm not afraid to answer any of them, and you know, I don't, I don't pivot or run from them, so we can, we can make it happen, and, and you know, give yourselves a round of applause, thanks again for coming out, like I, you know, I, I appreciate it, for sure. This microphone right here. We just gonna. I guess we just gonna. We gonna pass the mic around. And make it happen. <laughs> yeah. Good evening. Um, hey, how you doing? All right. I I noticed the showcase when I was walking to go to the store. But do you ever visit the penitentiary, like the jailhouse that a young man? You know, it hurts me to see our own black men are being jailed for things that they understand that the only way they can get through a person is by killing them. I've been to, But have oh, you been to the penitentiary? Yes, yes, I've been to Jessup twice and I've been to um, Baby Bookings too. And, um, and I also, I work with a guy named Chris Wilson who does re-entry work. So I try to do what I can do as a writer to promote the things that he does to help get people assimilated once they actually get up out of jail. You know, so um, that's not, that's bigger than you know, that's bigger than a, a personal responsibility. That's my job. Like, yes, I'm active. I got my own Jessup MCIJ certificate and all that. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm responsible. I'm responsible for that because those people are me. Like, they're me. I'm, I'm not on a pedestal. I'm not anything different. I, you know, I turn fried fish apart with greens without a fork. Like, I'm them. Like, we're the same people. So it's my job to be a resource, to be a person they can talk to and reach out to, and to just share some of the things that... Um, what the redemptive power of art and education has done for me. I'm very fortunate to not be there because, you know, um, <laughs> under Martin O'Malley, where I grew up, it was kind of pretty easy for a black person to go to jail. So it's my job to be there, and I, and I try my best to do that. Well, one more question. Um, have you turned these young men around all day when they, not the one that doing time for life, but even them too, have they written a book of the life behind bars with you being a mentor, so, so to say. 
So I haven't besides had besides Baltimore. Have you did other states besides Baltimore's? You know, Maryland. So I haven't had the, the opportunity to be invited to a jail outside of Baltimore, but right. I'm not like I'm not I'm not turning it down. Okay. Um, that's yeah. That's that's honorable to me. Um, and I think it's my job to you know be a resource or a person to connect people to resource from all walks of life. So you know if they in a jail trying to figure it out or if they um on the street trying to figure it out. Like, I don't forget. One of my biggest things is accessibility. Don't cheer for Freddie Gray and clap for Mike Brown after they did, after their murders go viral. Where the Mike Browns and the Freddie Grays at right now? Find them and reach out to them and build with them, and then we, we don't have to worry about, like, coming to the party late because that's, that's what I'm super against. Hi. Actually, uh, my name is Trinetta Roach. I'm from Detroit, Michigan. This is my friend. And I'm here because I heard you tonight, two, about last week on NPR, accidentally, on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> I tuned in and I heard you discussing your book. And it was interesting to me. I didn't feel it was a coincidence because part of my work is working with young women between the age of 14 and 18 who are in lockdown situations, to mentor them, to try and help them make different choices. Um, I came to the conclusion after a while that I needed more skills, more knowledge, more practical information to impart so that they could make different choices and move out of that cycle of incarceration and poor me and this and that. So my job is a life coach for young women, uh, and I've evolved into it pretty much as you have. And when I heard you, I said, you know, I want to be in the room with that guy because the arc of his life has, is really the dream that I have for these women. You can do more than sit here and come back again and again and again, and it's within your own power to make that happen because you have other powers that you can use, and you have utilized yours quite well. Thank you. So, <laughs> so you've already reached into Michigan. <laughs> That's love. Uh, to people that you don't know. <laughs> That's love. Thank so you. I want to let you know. You know, I kind of, I was a little frustrated with that. I like, I'm, you know, I'm really, I'm proud and I'm happy that they, that they had me on. But I, I was a little frustrated with the Fresh Air interview because I felt like I didn't get a chance to talk about the work I do as a writer. You know, it's like, yeah, I have, I have a story, but it's, where I'm from, everybody has a story. Everybody has a story. There's nobody from East Baltimore walking around who haven't had friends and siblings and parents or family members murdered and who haven't lost family members to drugs and things like that. So it's like, I feel like, yeah, I get that, but at the same time, you know, I'm able to do a lot of stuff as, as a writer and I focus on craft and trying to get better and helping people develop those skills. So I kind of wanted to talk about that, too. But, I mean, it's all good. Um, it reached a lot of people and a lot of people have looked up and saw other things on me. So we was able to get that narrative out there. But, no, it's a job. Um, the most important thing is what you're doing for those young women, they're going to do it for other young women and other young people. And that's how you spread it. When I was um, in grad school, not even grad school, I think undergrad, I read um, a story about this woman named Rosa Lee. You heard of her? From D.C. A guy named Leon Dash, he's a great writer, and um, she was a woman, 
she was on heroin and she had like eight kids. And, you know, basically what his piece was about is how to, you know, she was, she was locked up. And it was basically about how the system failed her. So they did a follow-up. And this is like, and this is what I, you know, when I have these conversations, I'm not just talking about those of us who are in this business of rehabilitation and skill sharing and things like that. I'm talking about people who, who, who think about their money and where your tax dollars go. You know, this is something that a person who's, you know, super right-wing, um, apple pie, mayonnaise conservative could, should really be paying attention to because these issues affect us all in one way or another. But, you know, the system failed this woman and she had eight kids and her eight kids went on to have like 40-some, you know, grandkids. So if you're paying 30-some thousand dollars, you know, a year for her as an inmate and then she ends up having 40 grandkids, 20 of which been through the system... That little thirty thousand is like up like six hundred and twenty some thousand dollars now. So it's like these are issues that affect us all in one way or another. In the same way, you know that cycle, that pyramid, you know, created in that negative direction is the same way doing what you do can go in the right direction, and we we need that. I agree with you that. Um we as individuals need to do the best we can and pass that on as individuals. But when you talk about um, what really works is most people look at the Black Panther Party and they talk about the things they do. But the real power of the Black Panther Party was that it was an institution. And um, we as black people, we need to build alternative in institutions. Like George Soros, you know, a lot of people see him as this great liberal person that gives a lot of money to people. But George Soros, I read all of his books. He's a brilliant intellectual um, economist. He talks about the compel compelling prejudice. But his compelling prejudice is against, um, is against socialism and communism because he came from that, that ilk. So That's the o OSI guy, right? Yeah, so what George Soros does is he sees progressive organizations and people that are possibly become revolutionary, possibly become very radical, and he gives them money so he can control them. So the point I'm making is that a lot of these nonprofits are really um, extensions of the system, and the power of the Black Panther Party was that it says that we have to build on our own, um, build so the point I'm making is we can do things as individuals, but we collectively have to build viable institutions, have buildings and places that people recognize and, and, and that's going to sustain us. Without that, all the individual talk, all the individual um, development is going to go out of the window because people value institutions. I mean, it, it might go out of a window from, from your perspective, but I can only speak from the changes that I've made as a person. So again, I don't think I have the power to reach everybody. I don't I don't wake up. I don't wake up with that agenda. You know what I mean? But a lot of these nonprofits, I don't work with them for the simple reason of a lot of nonprofits don't solve anything. Because if they've made if they fixed the problem, they they we wouldn't need them no more. Like so I definitely I definitely understand um where you come from. I wrote the OSI before, and when I wrote the OSI to get a grant, I wrote about um creating a program where young people can go around Baltimore City and, 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 and collect film and, and data and, and do interviews with like Baltimore residents before gentrification wipes the whole city out. 
OSI oh, said, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Because I'm trying to preserve a certain history of Baltimore that, you know, different interests don't want. So I definitely understand where you're coming from. Um, that's why I, I, you know, I tried really, really, really hard to do what I can do and then build with people who, who, who have like minds. Um, like, for instance, I wrote a story for The Guardian. Well, I wrote, but New York Times asked me to write the story. And then when I sent them my version of the story, New York Times was like, nah, man, we good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they like they said, come back when you want to, you know, sensationalize black people and talk about, you know, you know, some of that wild East Baltimore life. We don't want you. To, we don't want to hear about this guy Lance Lucas who has a, who has who is working to create a cure for systemic poverty, and that's not rhetoric. I we I went down. I went to the mayor's office with him. I followed him to New Orleans. I I, I talked to the kids in his program. I investigated what he's doing thoroughly. And in 100 months, he helped 60 people get A-plus certified. Um, people, people who identify as being in poverty, homeless, just released from prison, um, housing projects, whatever. He got 60 of them A-plus certified. 60 of those people got a job making that a minimum of $25 an hour. So that's 60% of the people he trained in three months escaping poverty. That's a genius story. That, that's an amazing story. That's real change. And I had to go to a UK paper to get it ran. You know, you know what I'm saying? So, I, you know, if you're a nonprofit and you're doing great work, that's all fine and good. If you know how to get money and make a difference, that's cool. But I can't put my faith in nothing but the people and what I can do to help the people. I know I can't do everything, but I know if I'm accessible and I'm a voice and I'm in your face and I'm pushing you and I'm challenging you. And if you're sending me your writing, you're writing essays and you're sending them to me and I know you're playing and being lazy and not being the best person that I think you can be. You're like, for my opinion, I know I can be that voice and do that. And that's my job. And but other people have different things that they're good at, too. So I, I, I'm, I'm with you on that for sure. Uh, hello, everyone. I just got out of jail Saturday. I was incarcerated in the federal facility down here on Madison Street for one hour and 17 minutes, and I felt like I was doing life. <laughs> they didn't have any hot water in that place. I went down there to talk to the prisoners about their problems with drug addiction and alcoholism. And when you go into jail, you don't realize that the prisoners are a commodity. They're worth $129 a day. That's how much money they collect to take care of the prisoners. We live in America, we are 5% of the world population, but we have 25% of the people in the world locked up. Well, it's not a new thing, incarceration has become a business. Biggest business. Yeah, it's a, it's a monster. Number you one know, employer. You, you think you know some poor little gambler who was a, a dope dealer, drug addict, gangster. But the real gangsters, the real gangsters are robbing you blind and you don't even know it. Who would have thought in 1960 if I said, uh, I'm going to pay a dollar for a bottle of water? <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, you know, who would have thought that? You know, who would have believed that a 25-cent pack of cigarettes was going to cost $7? Who could have possibly thought that I would pay $40 a month to talk on the phone? 
I mean, really, you know, if you had a, they didn't have cell phones, but you, you said that you, you got to pay me $40 a month to use that pay phone, you'd probably say, well, I only caught two or three people. <laughs> so I don't really need the service. But nowadays, we all have a, a concentration of media. Uh, there were, I probably know 2,000 Freddie Grays. I'm kind of old. And, and Freddie Gray didn't get a name until the media stepped in. You know, the police write a story about what happened to you these days, and then somebody comes out with the video. And they find out that what they said happened wasn't really what happened. So Freddie Gray is not a new guy. We just happen to know this guy's name. But there were many Freddie Grays. Or they whack him, you know, just like uh, it's everyday kind of thing, because the police will tell you he's trying to get home and do his job. And some of the police are worse than the criminals. I know that from personal experience. It's not to say it's a bad thing, but they justify their behavior by saying they don't make enough money to die out there on the job, so I, I might as well shoot you now <laughs> before you decide to do something else. That's what they do to people these days. And I just got out of the federal penitentiary Saturday, a little hour and 17 minutes. I had to go home and take a shower. I felt dirty. <laughs> I was locked up. That girl said, what's wrong? I said, I just got out of jail. Felt like I did some time or something. And I was only there for an hour and 17 minutes. Can you imagine how people feel being in the box? for five years or 10 years or 15 years or 20 years with no hope of redemption for something as trivial as a, you know, a little minor stick up or something, trying to get something to feed your family. We call it drugs a business. How come they can't? They find two teaspoons of anthrax, but they can't find a ton of heroin. You find that right here in Baltimore City. You, you can walk in any direction a couple of blocks and, and get you some medication. And now these days, medication is more popular than heroin. And sell drugs, and where they sell detox medication, benzos. Who, please. And, and the stuff they smoke, they don't even, uh, it's not like the marijuana I knew when I was a young man. <laughs> 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 All kind of different stuff. You know, and we're, we're, we're walking about, worrying about uh, solving problems. Wait till the trial is over, Freddie Gray's trial. Who knows how that's going to come out? But I bet you a couple of days before the trial, the National Guard be sitting out there on Northern Parkway. The governor, he, he Googled when they said they were having a ride at North and Penn. The governor Googled Northern and Penn because he had never been to Northern Pennsylvania. <laughs> Yeah, I know you might be a successful person, but you've probably never been to Northern Pennsylvania yourself. You don't know what it looks like. You don't know where it is. If you don't drive down North Avenue. So information is good. Thank Thanks you. for letting me talk. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> two tea, two teaspoons of anthrax versus a ton of heroin. <laughs> you know, I mean, the jails is big business in this country. You know, um, let's address the elephant in the room. 
I saw some people bragging about the um, Industrial Revolution and why America's a superpower. I said, no, no, slavery. And you and you still doing it through um, the prison system who hires, you know, AT&T hires more black people in the jails than they do outside of jail. It's a system. Hi, thank, Dwight, thank you very much for talking about your book and writing your book, and I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it, and I found thank it. You. You're welcome. Um, you know, both super, you know, informative and educational and entertaining and moving, and you mentioned that on the Terry Gross interview that you wish you'd had the opportunity to talk maybe more about craft and about your writing maybe in your process. Can I ask you to talk a little bit about that now? Yeah, um, so I read and write every day, um, you know, and and I read everything, all types of writers from all different types of perspectives, not, you know, um, James Baldwin is one of my favorite writers, and Sherman Alexi and Juno Diaz, and obviously Toni Morrison, but I also step back to people like Fyodor Dostoevsky, like, I read everything all of the time. I constantly consume information, and I constantly try things. And you know, um, I'm a Bach writer, so if I, if, you, if I publish an essay that's 800 words, it probably started out as like 2,500, because I just chop everything. Um, I'm a product of the attention deficit disorder era, so <laughs> you know, if something isn't really clicking in the first three lines, I don't finish it. And I think about my own writing in that way. Um, I'm proud of what I created. Um, one of my best, one of my best friends, Tavon Robinson, is in, in a federal prison right now, serving 27 years. Who was proud to say he never read anything ever, finished the B side in a day, and then thought about it so much that he read it again three days later. So, I and that's that's that was my goal, you know, for 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 that that person who doesn't have a love for reading to pick that book up and read it. When I was a kid. Um, this books that schools gave us was like, they gave us like Mark Twain, right? They gave us um, up Dunbar, they gave us, when I went to Dunbar, when I went to Dunbar, hold up, when I went to Dunbar, they gave us Ben Carson's Gifted Hands. <laughs> Fail. <laughs> so, you know, um, one thing I remember about that book, because I didn't read it, I ain't going to front, but I skimmed it, and I remember one of the major, one of the major parts of that book was he pulled a knife on his mom because she bought him some pants that he didn't like. We should the question mark should have went up right there. Your mother bought you some pants. How you gonna put a knife on her? That's crazy. Like, you know what I'm saying? I want some pants. Like, come on, man. Like, you know, that you know, red light should have went off right there. But um, you know, I guess it ain't like handouts, right? <laughs> but but um no, if you live in a place as wild as East Baltimore, we knew the most popular people who drove the best cars, who, you know, were the best at basketball, all these amazing, wild, colorful things going on around us, all these characters, these storytellers, these interesting people around us, and then we come into school and you give us Mark Twain? Now, this is not to take away from Mark Twain, because now, now I get it. I get why they assign Mark Twain. I get the genius in that. Mark Twain has some of my, some of, some of my favorite quotes. I'm a quote guy. Some of my favorite quotes are from Mark Twain. I think um, once school stopped, my education began. Like, I get it now, but as a, you can't give no 11-year-old kid from East Baltimore, 12-year-old kid, Mark Twain. He's not trying to hear that, or she's not trying to hear that. But if we can give them stories where they see themselves, then we can spark the fire and go from there. So... Somebody hear me. This is, what, this is what preachers must feel like. But um, <laughs> I'm gonna give me a little robe. No, but um, 
I feel like if we do that and we start there, then we can build into bigger and better things. But as a writer, um, and these are the things I wanted, I wanted to talk about, but I, I, um, I throw away way more than what I actually put out. Um, you know, my memoir that comes out in May was, I think it was, I got, I got up to like, I got up to like 145, 150,000 words. It's like 65 now. You know, trim the fat, get to the point. Um, tell the story, hit those issues you want to hit, but at the same time, create a reality where it's a page turner, people aren't intimidated by the thickness of the book, they're not intimidated by the chapter size, but at the same time, you're using language, you're using storytellers, and all the elements that, um, that make me love storytelling and, and trying to do that. So that's, that's what, I, what, I, what, I, what I try to do, and, and I'm, just, I'm proud to say that it's, it's working with a lot of um, non-traditional readers, and I'm, with that, you know, I can die right now and be good because I know I did my part. and I attend Vivian T. Medical Arts Academy, and this is my teacher right here. Hello. She, <laughs> How y'all um, doing? She actually printed out some excerpts or whatever from your book, and my entire class, we really like reading it, especially me, because I'm the loudest person, and I always have something to say. And we had a lot of debates on it, and a lot of us could really relate to what you were saying. And me reading um, Gunplay, I could visualize everything you were, you know, writing about. So I really like, you know, the book itself. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And you know what? You know what? Um, and that's the start. So now, how do you flip that into branching in into other forms of literature? You know, read. there's great articles out there. There's great other great writers out there. There's people that are doing great work, but it's, we got to start somewhere. And as long as we can start there, um, that, you know, it, it's, it's a great start, but we got to keep it moving. Thank you. Shout out to Brea for, you know, being brave and make the comment. Thank you. So thank you, Dee Watkins, for that very informative talk. We have books outside for sale, and Dee Watkins will be signing his books at the end of the hall. So please go out and purchase Plenty books. Thank you again. <laughs> Thank you. Is it a mark out there? Is it a mark out there? Yeah. Oh, all right. <laughs>